Amen. I'll, uh, Isaac asked me to give a minute on the book, just so you kind of know what it's about. It's good. Let's pray. Father, help us. I'm asking that you would speak to us, that you would minister to us. I'm asking that you would bring us into something that we're not prone to enter into or see apart from your help, but you are so good at helping us. You are so skilled at leading us. There is no one like you. There's no one like our God, mighty to save, mighty to bring us into and establish us in truth and love that's far beyond what we're capable of producing on our own. God, I'm asking, minister to us this morning in Jesus' name, amen, amen. We are in a moment. We are in a moment. I said this to the students on Monday night. We're gonna look back, and I think that we're gonna take these three years 2018 to 2020, and I think we're going to set them alongside 1983 to 1995, of divine injections and instruction to help us, to set us up for success. We think of those cycles as prophetic seasons. I think of them as training and teaching seasons. The more I look back at the prophetic storyline, the more I think about the kindness of the Lord to train us and instruct us and help us. Again, he's bringing us into something that we're not to choose on our own. And even if we chose it in some kind of spiritual nobility, feeling good about ourselves and our wise choices, we still wouldn't quite get what we were choosing. It's, it's not even like you can just choose what God's put before us. We don't even get it. He's like, here, I've got this thing. And we're like, yes, because I am spiritual, I will say yes. God goes, I love you. You don't have a clue what I'm doing but I love you. In, uh, in September 1982, I'll just tell you the title of this message because we're, as Isaac said, we're continuing from last week, um, what Mike shared about the black horse story. If you aren't current with that conversation, I'm proceeding a bit this morning, assuming that you are, which is bad if you're here for the first time or watching for the first time. That's super bad preachmanship. But uh, beloved, my beloved Abby Soto, I love her so much. She poked her head back while I was working back there. And she said, uh, hey, do you have a verse? And I said, no. And she thought I was being funny. She thought, because we have a fun relationship. So she thought I was kidding with her. So she kind of smiled and she goes, really? I go, really, No. She goes, just one verse. I go, no. And, and, and the, the reason, I didn't have time to explain. I didn't want to explain. Because it's going to sound like I, I'm a, I don't know what it's going to sound like when I say this. But for real, preparing for this morning, this is going to sound exaggerated. I assure you that it's not. To prepare for this morning, I have over 100 pages of personal notes, transcripts, um, content, content that was generated this week in discussing Sunday morning. There was well over a hundred pages of things to kind of sift through. And my notes this morning are three pages. I just want to put you at ease. <laughs> I'm not going for the next three days this morning. I, uh, but getting that, that hundred pages down to three required making peace with this. Mike started a conversation last Sunday that we're going to be engaging with together for a long time. 
And if that in and of itself doesn't strike you as unusual, related to the subject at hand, hopefully by the end of this morning, you'll catch, if, if you catch one thing, if you walk away from this morning with one thing, let it be that you walk away with an attentiveness to the Holy Spirit, a desire to fast, not out of duty or responsibility, but out of urgency related to the necessity of sensitivity. Let it be that by the time we're done this morning, you're realizing this is not your normal year if you needed more <laughs> to convince you that this is not a normal year. We're just in an unusual moment. And, and here's one last point on that. The unusual moment that we're in, I, I find the prophetic moment to be so profound, it's almost like I forget, except for your masks, that we're in a global pandemic. That seems so unimportant and, and small to me. I know that sounds so bizarre, but, but the Lord is speaking something to us that is of such significance, and it is so dear and so near to his heart. It is so central to who he is and what he's about. The circumstances of today are so far secondary. The inconveniences, the troubles, the plagues, the difficulties, they're intense, but I promise you, in light of the prophetic moment, they're so secondary. But they're real. They're, they're exhausting on their own. So we need the Lord. But on the, on the other side of it, we have the Lord. He is with us. He is with us. Though, this, uh, though the title of my message this morning and the title of last week is intense, actually it's quite good news. Just takes us a minute to get there. What's the title of my message this morning? The notes are online or will be. The title is, Transformed by the Greatness of God in the Face of Accusation and Betrayal. In September of 1982, the Lord declared to Mike, but really to us, to many, he declared that he, the Lord, this is so important, the Lord declared that he, sometimes when you're new here and you hear this prophetic story, we, we go, man, I can't believe I get to be, you know, part of this. We're going to change the expression of Christianity. That, that is just the most untrue statement ever uttered. It's just not, IHOP's not going to, definitely I'm not going to, 1,000% you are not going to. We're not going to change the understanding and expression of Christianity. God didn't say that. He said, I'm going to. I'm inviting you to be a part, but I'm going to do it on a global scale. You being a part means you're going to engage with me in your neighborhood scale. You're gonna engage with what I'm doing globally with your family, and it matters. It matters that you are aligned with what I'm doing, and it matters that you do what I am doing. It matters that you participate, but just so we're clear, I'm gonna do the global thing, says the Lord, and you're going to express that global thing in a very small but profound, powerful, and important way to the people around you. You're gonna do your part in my global plan. I got the globe, you got your kids. I, the Lord, will change the understanding and expression of Christianity in one generation. There are so many layers to that declaration, so many layers to what the Lord said. Number one, there, that there would be a dramatic change. Just that word is a word we need to fixate on. I, the Lord, am going to change something across the world. I mean, just think about a global pandemic, think about a virus hitting globally and the change that brought and how disruptive. Now expand virus to God and you have the idea of a little bit of scale here. If an economy you know, crumbling in Europe can have a ripple effect across the globe and a virus, or not, it's not really a virus, if a, you know, this little thing with spikes can bring the globe to a halt, what's going to happen when God decides it's time to make a change? Intense, shocking disruptions and conflicts. 
It's what he's advertising. I wrote a book about that. It's in the bookstore. He said, I'm going to change the way that Christianity will be understood. That's a key word. The way that it's understood. It's a big concept. I'm going to spend seconds on a gigantic thought. The day of the Lord in the book of Joel and many other places. The day of the Lord, the meaning of that phrase includes the season of time in the future in which God's plans and intentions, here's the key phrase, would be clear to all. The day of the Lord is the day in which his plans and intentions for the earth would be clear to all. Do we grasp the implications of that? I don't. It's one thing for the Lord to say, I'm going to change the world in one generation. How are you going to do it, Lord? I'm going to make my plans and intentions clear to every inhabitant of the planet. No one will miss what is on my mind and what I intend to do. doesn't mean everybody gets saved. It just means everyone knows. When you read the book of Revelation, when you read the prophets, we get these snapshots of what it looks like. We get glimpses of what it looks like when the earth is aware of what God wants to do. Psalm 2 is a psalm built around the idea that the kings and the, and, the, and the leaders of the world know what God wants to do. That's just a terrifying thought. I'm going to make it known to everybody what I intend to do. That's a big point. Then he says, I'm going to change not just the understanding, but the expression. Which means I'm going to change in one generation the way that God's people display something beautiful together across the earth in the midst of great upheaval. I'm going to change the expression of Christianity. In, in other words, my people, part of the way that I'm going to help the nations of the earth know the full intentions of my plans and purposes in this age, part of the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to raise up a global people. I bring global change, declare my global intent by raising up a global people that express something. When, when you grasp that, just, just hang there for a minute. I, the Lord, am going to show myself to the earth. I'm going to express my heart to the earth. I'm going to show the world who I really am. I did it 2,000 years ago. I showed the world who I really am when I hung on a cross. And 2,000 years later, I'm going to show the world who I really am through my people. That is a gigantic point. Now, it doesn't matter who you are in this room. It doesn't matter who you are watching. See, the thing I, don't, the thing I didn't like about last week and the thing, the thing I'm, I'm sure Mike didn't like about last week, it's our tendency to listen to these kinds of gigantic stories from a safe distance, glad for the man of God to entertain us with the light of his experiences. And it's like, ooh, Mike, you went through something. Man, that must have been hard for you. <laughs> wow. There, it's going to happen again. And look, there's Isaac, and he's a prophetic sign. Man, it's going to be hard for him. I think we, I, I'm going to say something. <laughs> I think we accidentally idolize, idealize, or hyper-spiritualize the men of God to put ourselves from a safe distance of actually having to respond. What did you come out to the wilderness to see, Jesus said? When you, were, when you came, did you, were you responding to the prophet's words when you came to the wilderness, or were you coming to see the prophet? Sometimes we are content to see the prophet and feel the power like John's disciples, feel the power of our identification with a godly person. Like, ooh, that story confirms that I made a good choice to choose to come here. 
that story confirms that I made a wise choice to join this people. That, that, that turns fast when you read the title of this sermon. The, the feeling of a good choice won't sustain you with the kind of pressure and trouble that's coming. The feeling of a good choice turns to the wondering if you made a bad choice when suddenly your reputation's taking a hit for being identified with the very prophet you felt great to identify yourself with earlier. What are you talking about? What is he saying? A lot. I'm not rebuking anybody. Don't feel personally rebuked. What I'm speaking to is human nature and the tricky human heart, not necessarily you, you know, Joe. Is Joe here? <laughs> Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Poor Joe's like, I am here. You were talking to me. The, the thing about this storyline that we've been invited into, we're not here to be spectators to somebody else's radical response. We're not brought here sovereignly by the Holy Spirit to be spectators critiquing somebody else's leadership in the midst of that response. In one sense, it's all so irrelevant. The point is God wants to display something to the peoples of the earth through his people, which means that it's an all-hands-on-deck response. It doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter what your function is. It doesn't matter how important you feel or don't feel in the midst of the spiritual community. It doesn't matter where you're located in proximity to the burning prophet at the center of the story. That's not real. None of that's real. What's real is that all of us have been swept into this global story by a kind father so that we would be on a fast track to express something that looks like him to the peoples of the earth. God is going to write an apologetic for his kindness and mercy on the hearts of his people. He's going to have a burning people who ache with his tenderness, who see through the lens of his mercy, who have a humility that they're marked with that isn't natural to them. There's going to be a lowliness of heart that is going to shock the world when the kindest ones ever produced by grace are going to love their enemies as their enemies seek to exterminate them. That's where it's not about who's called to preach something, and it's not about who's called to lead something, and it's not about who's called to organize something. It's about all of us being called to express something. The fivefold ministry in Ephesians 4 is to get us into expressing something together that shocks the world. It doesn't matter what the preacher preaches if the people don't live it. It doesn't matter what the prophet prophesies if the people aren't expressing it. It's irrelevant, it's ultimately meaningless. But God is not a God of the meaningless. He's very purposeful. And he has declared his intention to bring a change so dramatic that the world will be forced to take note, not by the forceful, powerful anointing on the church, but by the tender, lowly meekness of the church as they move in crazy signs and wonders. It's really not how we would have done any of this. He made this declaration. It is important to note that this prophetic declaration is where our small part in this grand story begins. God was going to do it anyways. Not because he said it in Cairo, Egypt in 1982. God was gonna do it anyways because he said it to Isaiah and he said it to Ezekiel and he said it to John. When he says it, in Cairo, Egypt in 1982, he's really just saying, hey, what I talked about with my friends Isaiah and Ezekiel and John, I'd love for you to be a part if you want to. Just the fact of that, by the way, should alert us to the fact that the train can go by and we're loved by Jesus and we're secure in our eternal destiny with him in the age to come in the new Jerusalem, but that doesn't necessarily mean participation in that which he's going to do across the whole earth. There's just lots of times where the train goes by, by us and we mean well. We have a small part in this. 
And our small part began in 1982. The declaration is our invitation to engage with a biblical storyline that we would not have understood or engaged in without God's significant and persistent grace and help. The Father has extended an invitation for us to consider the story that's unfolded since he made that statement. He's extended an invitation to consider fully engaging with our little part in the story. I've said this before, I'll say it again. God went out of his way to get everyone in this room and beyond. So many watching, so many that will watch, so many that have been a part of this over 20 years. The Lord sent you elsewhere, but the Lord's still interested in the long-term conversation. He's still interested in the conversation he started with you in 1982. Even if you weren't born yet, he started a conversation with you before you were born. He orchestrated events to get your attention related to that conversation. He's still interested in engaging you in that conversation as it relates to what's coming and where this is going. I am very sober and humbled. When you read the notes, you'll see it. I've got this word, this phrase in quotes, the difficulty of the task. It's not difficult for the Lord. That's why it's in quotes. It's difficult for me. <laughs> I'm looking at what it is. The more I realize what it is that God's looking to do, the more it is that I'm kind of realizing where it is this is going, the more it is I realize, God, I, this is, I say this tongue in cheek, I've made this hard for you. <laughs> that you would tell this story to a weak, broken, egocentric person like me. I chose egocentric instead of narcissistic. I just have a, one of my most profound spiritual gifts is making everything about me. There are so many obstacles within my own soul that work against understanding this story and engaging with it. It's why we need to fast. It's why we need to talk with him. It's why we need our Bible open when we do it. There's just so many things in me that work against actually hearing. To understand and engage in something as significant as the Lord's end of the age plan, and here's the key phrase. Here's what it's all about. Here's the bottom line in one sentence. Everything that it's all about comes down to this phrase, his plan to vindicate his name amongst the nations of the earth. God is writing an apologetic for his kindness and goodness, and he's doing it to answer the argument that has been within the human soul since the fall of man, the simple argument that's alive within us, whether we realize it or not, operating within our carnal thinking, operating within that, 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 those little kind of distortions that we accidentally insert into the narrative it's this, man is good and God is not. It's just a very small, subtle accusation that has great consequences and distorts significantly. It distorts how we understand our story. It distorts how we understand the prophetic history. It distorts how we understand our life together. It distorts how we understand what everything is about because that subtle little accusation in the deep recesses of our soul influences so much of how we think. Ezekiel 36, 22 God said to Israel, he said, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel. I do this for my name's sake. He says it about 15 times in Isaiah or more, through Isaiah. Because Israel had, the next part of that verse, profaned his name amongst the nations. And by profaned, what that means is, the way that they lived and expressed life together was a poor representation of who God really is. The very manifest presence of his glory was in their midst and they were not transformed by it. They instead acted in a carnal manner that distorted the name of God amongst the nations that when the nations would look at Israel, they would go, well, Yahweh must be, and they would make conclusions. And so it is with the church in our day. I'm not 
bothered by that. I'm not upset by that. Because the father's not. The father doesn't look at the bride and go, oh no, what am I going to do? The father looks at the bride with much hope and much joy and much pleasure and much love and tenderness and much mercy and, and real gentleness, understanding process and grace. He understands where we start from and he understands how to get us where we're going and he's really good at it. He's not filled with angst about our current condition. And that's not what I'm trying to communicate. I'm just trying to disestablish with reality where we really are. The more clear we can be about where we really are without shame or condemnation, the more shocked we're going to be when God gets us somewhere else. We're going to look back and we're going to go, I really was that kind of egocentric, narcissistic mess. I'm not saying that was shame or condemnation or anything. You really loved me back then, and you helped me. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That phrase in the book of Revelation is both a prophetic picture of how successful God's mission is going to be to vindicate his name, and it's his declaration of intent. This is where it's going. By the time I'm done, says the Lord, by the time I am finished with my plan, before it's all done, the earth will know what I'm about to do. Everyone will know. And then by the time I'm done, no matter how much they hate me, every argument and accusation against me will be removed. That is a, that is a shocking statement. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, Lord, you know that there's a significant percentage of those confessors that are going to the lake of fire. He goes, I don't want that. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I want all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I want all men to come to repentance. I do not want that for humankind. I love my enemies and want them to be with me as my dearest friends forever. I don't want that for them. But... I am going to put the choice before them and part of the choice that I put before them is my cleansed, mature, transformed bride that loves her enemies like I do. I'm gonna put my bride before the nations of the earth. They're going to have a choice to make and in making that choice, no matter what they choose from that point forward, they will never be able to declare that I am not good. They will never be able to declare that I am evil. The accusation against me will be removed from the human race in part by the product that my grace produces through my love and care, through my bride and what they express. I will have a tender people. I will have a people that love like I do and it will be a sign and a wonder and from there, all accusation against me will be silenced forever. He's going to declare his greatness. His greatness. From last week, here's where we come in. I mean, just so we get how this works. It's like, how do I, small, selfish, petty, all of my lack of sanctification comes hurtling forward in embarrassing fashion every time some Missouri driver cuts me off. It is so embarrassing how far I am from the grandeur of what I just said. And the Lord goes, I get it. You really are. I mean, when Paul said the chief of sinners, when I was like 19, I was like, you're so humble, Paul. <laughs> now I'm, I can see 50 on the horizon. I'm going, ah, okay. <laughs> Let the reader understand. So God goes, no, it's okay. You know, the, the young man, the young woman, the, the different struggles that we have, they feel so giant. God goes, no, no, no. There's a, there's a more gigantic struggle behind the one that you're staring at day in and day out because of your, I mean, your pride is exaggerating that weakness as your storyline. Actually, there's about five layers you can't see that I see clearly and I have a plan for those. 
You actually would never engage with me related to deliverance from the spirit of betrayal. You focus on your addiction. You focus on your temper. You focus on your speech. Good, keep keep doing all that because you're not at all focused on the spirit of betrayal that's lingering underneath the surface that powerfully has a hold in your life in ways you can't see. Because I, I see it, but I love you. I'm not, I'm not bothered or frustrated or angry. In fact, I have a wonderful plan for your life to help deliver you from a spirit of betrayal and accusation. We go, this sounds amazing. He goes, it is. It's called a demonic principality that someone that the archangel Michael called the black horse. I don't know if he said those words. It was a horse that was black. God is orchestrating a demonic assignment to refine us as a people so that in the process we could be rooted in a Zechariah 3 narrative of viewing people through the lens of his gentleness. He goes, I'm gonna say something so, it'll be, Maybe as ouch as the thing I said at the beginning. But I trust that you like me, so I'm going to say it. Here's what I think happened recently. By recently, I mean four years ago. So the church four years ago gets a president that in her evangelical heart, her dear evangelical heart, she gets a president that'll do just about everything she wants. But he is one of the most offensive human beings in all of history. So that's a dilemma. And then in the midst of it, the 40, 50, 60-year-olds pragmatically are going, let's be pragmatic about this. The 15, 20, 25, 30-year-olds are going, you told me character counted. I'm very confused. And in the midst of all that, His way has opened up a fountain of accusation against the church. And in my opinion, we're not passing the test so well. We are defensive. We are justifiers. It's just kind of where we're at right now. And again, the Lord goes, it's okay. I've got a way out of this. This season, it may not be what you thought it was. This season just may have been a season of revealing that this issue of accusation and betrayal isn't their issue. Because that's what I'm seeing all over the body of Christ. I'm seeing people rising up and writing each other off really fast. I'm seeing people rising up. If you don't say politically or ideologically what I believe, if you're not lining up with where I'm at, Are you one of those liberals? Are you one of those myopic conservatives? I'm just watching people rise up, choose their side, and ride off the other side really quickly. It's that process of responding to accusation through subtle dehumanization. The Lord goes, it's okay. This is a pop quiz. What I'd like you to do is to acknowledge that and begin the process of repentance so that I can deliver you from that. Because you you hear black horse and all you think are the people that are gonna rise up and accuse you. And he goes, you're entirely missing the point. The greatness of the Lord. The nature of If you remember the story, remember what I said, I'm gonna engage in this story as if you heard it. So if you're a visitor, know that we love you. It's not normally like this. Out of the the ditch, when this demonic principality shatters the knee, this this little prancy, arrogant white horse gets kicked and thrown into the ditch. But at the end of the vision, comes out of the ditch, this gigantic 15-foot, muscular, ripped horse. And when I was young, when I first heard that story and the prophetic history and all the promises of God that we've talked about and prayed into, I thought to myself, that's so cool. Though the demon injures the, the little horse for a minute, she's gonna come out 
with apostolic authority. Signs and wonders and power and preaching. She's going to come out with stadiums and mass conversions and the devil will lose. I thought, as a 20-year-old, I thought, this is the coolest story. And the Lord just gently asks, is that how you define greatness? Is that how you define my greatness? Is that how you define what I would consider muscular and strong and mighty and mature? Is that how I define that? Yes, anointed, obviously. Is that how you define that? Is that how your church culture defines it? Or is it how I define it? Well, the answer, it's actually not that easy to come to, though it's just staring at us. It's so simple, but it's so easy. It's so hard to get a hold of. Of course, the muscularity of the white horse, the banner over the movement, the banner over that kind of people, the banner is the gentleness of the Lord, the heart of mercy and tenderness to see people through his gentle eyes and love those people regardless of what they do or say or believe. It just struck me. The horse that comes out of the ditch, strong and mighty, is strong and mighty because she can love her enemies, pray for them, bless them, serve them. That's mighty and great in God's sight. It is the definition of greatness, and it's our endpoint destination before the return of the Lord in maturity and love. Psalm 18, 35. You've also given me the shield of your salvation. This is the warrior king of warrior kings. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. Your gentleness has made me great. I mean, this is the psalm where, where he's thanking the Lord for training his hands for battle and war. But he goes, but that's not what makes me great. What makes me great is the very enemies I'm commissioned to defeat, I can feel your tender heart of love for. The, the end of the change in the understanding and expression of Christianity is a global white horse called the entire body of Christ. And it's produced in part by the refining process of an apex black horse. I mean, in the vision, the black horse that was coming against this movement, it was a 15-foot black horse. There's an apex black horse coming for the white horse of the body of Christ in the days to come. His name is the Antichrist. He's going to make this demonic principality look silly and small. The apex black horse that's coming is going to wage war through powerful accusations. And it's the accusation that is the seedbed for very painful betrayal. The accusations themselves actually aren't what you think. It's the way in which people you care about respond to those accusations that is the seedbed to painful betrayal. He is going to raise up a beautiful global white horse out of this refining process. He's gonna vindicate his name before the whole earth and he's going to remove the toxin of accusation and the spirit of betrayal from our own hearts in the process. He's gonna simultaneously, as I said earlier, cause his most bitter enemies to bow and confess that he's the Lord with zero accusation. It's very important to understand that this story that, that we're talking about, this demonic assignment and refining process is not unique to us. The Lord's gonna do this everywhere. He's just inviting us to lean in now. This is our entryway into the global story that God's orchestrating. This is our invitation to participate in the available grace. God is gonna have a bride that loves her enemies. God is gonna have a bride that's free of all bitterness and accusation. God's gonna have a bride that blesses, serves, and actively loves without distancing or writing off or avoiding. See, when we're mildly troubled by somebody, we won't call them an enemy, we'll just say we're frustrated. We won't say that we're angry, we'll just say that we're bothered. We're just processing. And all of that dignifies the distance we create. 
God is going to have a people that cannot bear distance from their enemies and will throw themselves at loving. It's hard to imagine. We're so great at quiet distance when we're troubled or offended. I want to say this. This is going to sound so weird. A demonic assignment with an advance warning does not mean fear a coming attack. It's the exact opposite. When God gives a warning of a demonic assignment with a refining promise, it's actually cause for the rejoicing at our own coming deliverance. The Lord is not telling you to duck. The Lord is preparing you to repent. The Lord is not calling you to avoid. He's preparing you to be contrite. He's not warning you in advance so that you'd be afraid. He's actually summoning your courage not to look at the ones accusing you and make them the story, but to look at what it's revealing in your own heart and make repentance the story. Actually, the news of a demonic assignment with a refining process is glorious news at the hands of a loving God that is serious about you and your calling. He's serious about your heart. He takes us seriously. Therefore, he invites us into a refining process by which there would be zero accusation or betrayal in our heart at the end of it. The Lord goes, do you know the appointment, the destiny with loving the people around you that you have? that I've appointed you for. I mean, it's really beautiful. The coming of the black horse, that pronouncement last week, it's not about our enemies. It's not about what they're gonna say. It's not even about the betrayal or the pain, the very, very, very real pain that it's going to cause. The story that we've been invited to engage with is isn't really about a demonic principality or power at all. Actually, this is the one time we get to be spiritually narcissistic. It's about us. The Lord goes, I see what's in there, and I love you too much to let you keep it in light of where this is going. Difficult but profitable repentance. I'm gonna speak just really quickly I'm a little, about, I got about two minutes and 45 seconds left. I'll probably take about seven minutes and 45 seconds if you don't mind. Mike said that last week and it went much longer, but I commit. <laughs> Just for a minute, I'm gonna talk about my encounter with the black horse in 2012 to 2015. Never really shared this. So this is not, it's not gonna be easy. I can't quite do it in two minutes but I don't quite want to wrap up. The, uh, Mike had it on the handout last week, December 2.10. He gets a dream that December that there was another Black Horse Seminary season that was coming. March 2011, he goes to the east. He goes to South Korea. By 2.12, by fall of 2.12, we find ourselves in a legitimate Black Horse season the details are on those, that handout and this handout. The details, really, they're not so important. It's just, it was real. Stuart Greaves and, and myself were suddenly in the eye of the storm during that season as intense accusations were made about our leadership and our character. That wasn't the painful part. This made, in that season for me, I was traveling a lot. It made traveling, speaking, teaching nationally and internationally very complex, very awkward. It was not enjoyable. I would go places. Sometimes they would cancel before I got there. Sometimes they would call me up. They would go, hey, the whole you know, ministry is talking about this. Can we schedule a side meeting so that people can come and ask you questions and you can answer the charges? No, no. I just want to teach. I just want to do what you asked me to do, if that's okay. But this is, everybody's talking about it. It'll be a distraction. Not for me. I'll go to my room. I'll show up at the class. I'll teach. I'll go back to my room. I, I really don't want to. And I said, I said the same answer every time, everywhere I went. Same answer. I have not had an opportunity to work this out with the young men that have brought the charges. It would not be appropriate for me to work it out with you in advance. I said the same thing every time. That wasn't, that was awkward, but it wasn't painful. 
what was painful and really hard to navigate were the friendships lost or the friendships changed as different ones aligned themselves with the accusation or worse, rallied to defend me. That neither one was awesome. It's really painful. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, ah, you were in my house, you're in my living room. I did your premarital counseling. And, and yet, it wasn't, I know now, uh, based on the testimony of some that have encountered the Lord since then, that have repented, that have been restored in relationship, which, by the way, is one of the beautiful things about really doing the stay quiet thing. You don't know in advance how the Lord's gonna shock your heart and turn it around. You can only feel in those moments the pain of the moment, and so you're not thinking at all about the restoration season. But if you can... If, you know, have a friend like Mike and have friends like I had in the season that can keep you quiet despite everything in me. I mean, if you know, I am the least likely candidate. I think maybe that's why I was in the middle of it all. The Lord goes, if I can keep him quiet, I can keep you quiet. The, the way that things were restored and what was said after the restoration, like, hey, just so you know, it was one of the things that was said to me. It was, I had an irrational hatred of you. There was no reason for it. He goes, it was an irrational hatred. It was demonic. And he said to me, he goes, actually, you were quite kind to me. And I was like, you know, I was kind of thinking I was. I'm so glad you said that. I've wanted to have this conversation for years. I was so confused. He goes, no, it was irrational. It was demonic. He goes, but when I encountered the Lord, it was replaced instantly with an irrational love for you. I've prayed for you ever since. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, this story God's writing. With the help of Mike, here's the key. Here's where I'm going. Here's why I want to take about four more minutes. With the help of Mike and the help of close friends, the, uh, the, 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 the glory we don't see yet. You know, when we're on the front side of a wave of accusation and betrayal, the glory we don't see yet are what I call the friendships forged in fire. There's a quality of friendship you almost can't get apart from being forged in fire. It's like when the person's here and they're a little lonely and they're looking for a home group, I'm thinking you're just one crisis away from having the best friends of your life. Nobody would pick that route to have super close friends, but it's actually one of the benefits we don't realize on the other side of that kind of pain are the friendships forged in fire. And I could not have navigated that season without the help of the Lord to bring Mike alongside and the help of the Lord to bring friends alongside in ways I could have anticipated before, but ended up being my salvation, my anchor through that season. Of course, the grace of God. Because of that, the season became one of learning and growing through repentance rather than defending and arguing, which would have been exhausting and I would have lost my way. Of course, we want to avoid bitterness and offense. Of course we do. That's a given. We know that going in. But what I didn't know going in, the most surprising dimension of it all was the opportunity for significant accelerated growth by choosing the way of active love towards accusers. That's what I didn't know. I think about Mike. I think about his life. If Mike had not you know, gone through what he went through and he doesn't want to be the hero of the story. He, ultimately, he's not. And he would be the first to say that God is because it's so ridiculous. You know, here's Mike. I'm guessing he's more prone than me to talk at the wrong time. Let the reader understand. <laughs> and yet, every time the Lord went just ahead of him in a pastoral way, not just a prophetic way, to go, no, not here, don't say anything. And so, by simply acknowledging and obeying the leadership of the Lord to pastor him in that season, he was equipped in the next one to pastor me, to pastor Stuart, without which I wouldn't have made it. The side conversations, the quick pull-asides, the, the, the most helpful advice of all. Hey, these enemies of yours, these critics, they're telling you things that your best friends wouldn't tell you about you. Take notes and learn through their lens. Don't own it at that level, but take notes. They're gonna, they're gonna show you things about you that you couldn't have seen. That just changed everything, that little piece of advice. There's like 20 more like that that you can't get from a book 
or, a dist- or, or that distance we put. You can only get it by submitting to the fire and the pain of accusation and betrayal and trying to honor God. You only get it that way. It's a very expensive lesson, but it's one that made the lesson for me a little cheaper in the paying. And that's the point. Now we go through the next round. There's a, there's a little larger group that has experiential knowledge of the wisdom of the Lord. Again, I'm not trying to tout myself as the expert. I'm not, that is not what I mean. I just mean the whole key to getting through this thing together is pastoring one another through it. Modeling, pastoring, encouraging, championing. And, and I don't know that you quite get what's going on. I don't know that I quite get what's going on. But when the first time this happens, it's a Mike story. The second time it happens, it's a leadership story. The third time, God's telling the story in advance to a very large group of people. What do we think is going on? This is acceleration. This is, this is the indicator, the sign of the time in which we live. This is a sign of the nearness of what is upon us. The Lord is going from one to a couple to a thousand or more. The Lord wants to raise up a company of pastors that can pastor with experiential knowledge, having acquired by grace the wisdom of the Lord, thousands of 15, 16, 17, 18-year-olds. If you know anything about the story of the Lord, it's not
our own heart. Father, we just line up with your heart right now. And we say about our own lives what you say about us. We break our agreement with accusation against ourselves. And our friends and family members in the body of Christ that have mistreated us. We break our agreement with accusation against them. And we ask you, deliver our hearts. Deliver us because of your glory and your beauty. In Jesus' name. Just take a moment. Let's. Some of you have to slip out. Feel free. But let's sing to the Lord for a moment. Just let him wash us. We made the declaration. Let's let his spirit wash us for a moment. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. Be pleasing to you may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you my God cause you're
I wanna be 